All right, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Uh, thank you all for joining us today. My name is Maureen Conway. I am uh, Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And I am just thrilled to welcome you today to the launch of our Opportunity in America conversation series. Um, for over 25 years, the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program has elevated promising strategies, policies, and ideas that can help low and moderate income Americans connect to opportunity. We focus on strategies that help people access work and connect to good quality jobs. And we also focus on strategies that uh, help people uh, in ways that, to start their own business and um, build businesses and communities. Uh, we have seen how access to capital at the right time and with the right terms can help a woman entrepreneur build a business that thrives. We have seen how well-designed training programs with strong connections to industry and to communities can make all the difference in connecting communities of color to good jobs. Uh, we have seen how intentional business advising can help a business improve the quality of its jobs and the efficiency of its business at the same time. And we've had the privilege of working with amazing leaders from nonprofit organizations, local governments, businesses and business associations, labor unions and worker advocacy organizations, education institutions, and more. Uh, we've also had the privilege of working with academics, policy analysts, and scholars, and others who seek to understand the systems that perpetuate poverty and how policies and on-the-ground practices can work together to address those systemic challenges. Uh, and build more pathways to opportunity for those who really need them. All the people that we work with are doing really amazing work, and today it is really our, our privilege to bring a few of them, just a few of them, into conversation with you. Um, but also we need to recognize that we need more. Uh, despite the incredible work that's happening in many communities across the country, far, far too many people in the United States are excluded from opportunity. Far too many individuals are working hard but falling behind. Far too many families are struggling to care for their children and are concerned that their children's struggles will be even greater than their own. Too often, race, place, and gender play an outsized role in determining who's let in and who's shut out of economic opportunity. So today we will talk about all these issues, what's working, what's not, and how we can do better so that all in the US truly have a shot at building their own American dream. We hope that you will join us in this conversation today. Our hashtag is talk opportunity, but we hope you will silence your phone. We are live streaming and we welcome our live stream audience to, to join in the conversation as well. Um, uh, today we're going to have three conversations around themes that cross all of the work that we do in the Economic Opportunities Program. We'll begin with a conversation about the state of opportunity in the United States today, considering how our economic systems and structures have changed over the past decades and the implications for low and moderate income in individuals and families. We'll then have a conversation about opportunity inclusion, looking at the ways in which race, gender, and place intersect with the challenge of economic opportunity and ideas for addressing that challenge and, and building a more inclusive economy. Uh, we'll conclude with a panel that's really focused on the role of business and business choices in building opportunity. 
And interspersed between these panels, we'll have short breaks to give you time to informally talk with each other and stretch your legs a little bit. And then at the end of the day, we'll welcome you to, uh, to a reception, and we hope you will all join us for that. Um, I also want to note a change in today's speaker lineup. We are very sorry that unfortunately, due to a family emergency, Kelly Ryan of Encourage Foundation uh, was unable to be here with us today. But we are unbelievably fortunate that our friend, colleague, and Aspen Institute Job Quality Fellow, Betsy Beeman, happened to be in town and was willing and able to join our second panel. So we're just thrilled that Betsy can, can be on the second panel today. Um, we're very grateful to Walmart for special support for this uh, event kicking off this new series and to uh, Walmart.org, the Ford Foundation, and Prudential Financial for their support of the series overall. Uh, and we are very honored now to have Aspen Institute's own president, Dan Porterfield, uh, to lead off today's event. And I'm not only pleased that Dan's joining us because well, because it's my boss, um, <laughs> and because he did amazing things at Franklin and Marshall where he really focused on how do we include low-income students and students of color and really uh, value them in our community, how do, how, the amazing work that he did in Georgetown, and his really extremely accomplished career, all that's true, all that's in the biomaterials, and you can read about it. But the other wonderful thing about Dan is Dan is a son of Baltimore. He grew up in a neighborhood where he saw how issues of race and disinvestment in place influence access to economic opportunity. He understands the challenges, and he really feels the urgency of addressing the structures of poverty and connecting more people to opportunity. So Dan really has this in his bones. And it's just an honor to have Dan as the leader of the Aspen Institute and to welcome him to kick off the event today. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Martha. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Maureen, and thank you for all of you who are here today, for all who have traveled and all who are speaking and all who are uh, watching live. Um, what is the hashtag again? Talk opportunity. Talk opportunity. Uh, so um, we're super happy and proud to have support of philanthropists so that we could have this convening. The Walmart uh, Corporation, the Ford Foundation, Prudential Financial, Walmart.org. Walmart um, for their support of our Opportunity in America series. Um, for 70 years, the Aspen Institute has been organized, has organized itself and responded to a changing world with the goal of helping to promote a free, uh, just, and equitable society. And that requires us to be able to prioritize work like what you're doing today and to be insistent, as Maureen always is, about the moral urgency of coming together in order to address injustice inequity, and the needs of our working together purposefully to promote justice in its many forms. I thank you for all of that. Maureen, since she's wearing green, I can quote an Irish poet and say uh, that uh, William Butler Yeats had this term he used for people like Maureen. Uh, I know you never met, uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> what, what he said was there are those passionate serving kind, and that's what Maureen Conway and her team are. Thank you so much. Um, uh, it's clear that we're, we're doing the right thing right now by having this convening. Um, you know, it's an era of really global, rapidly escalating uh, tech-driven change uh, that is both creating opportunity for some and clearly closing out many and also scaring almost everybody. And so uh, put all that together, we need to be working pretty purposely. Um, the 
uh, you know, we all know, I think, something like one in four families uh, in the U.S. Uh, or the adults don't earn enough to be able to support a family right now um, can keep them out of poverty. And that's not the right thing to do, and it's not the smart thing to do. It's not the sustainable thing to do. Uh, there may be economic growth, but it won't be sustainable if everybody's not enjoying uh, the benefits of economic growth. Um, many people, many of my students from Franklin and Marshall College come from families where people are working many jobs to make ends meet, where there's just not economic security, um, and where there's one bad thing like a car crash or a fire that's like, you know, would be absolutely devastating to a family with no financial flexibility. I think I saw the other day, and I might, don't, don't quote me, quote Maureen, but I think I saw a statistic that said it's something like half the population lacks $400 to handle uh, an emergency. So that's just not, uh, that's just not right. Um, and it's fixable. Um, it is a growing trend, what we're seeing here. It's not just, you know, the problem, it's not the same problem, it's a problem that's worsening in many ways. Uh, so many of the fastest growing jobs in our economy don't pay a wage sufficient to keep a family out of poverty. So that's, that's, the, that's a major problem. They don't provide adequate benefits. Um, and many new businesses, you know, are coming up and they, they can be critical to job growth, of course. But that said, we are seeing rates of entrepreneurship actually declining a bit. And so that's a problem too. Um, and so can, what does it take to choose another path? Many things, not one thing. But I think one thing that hits me in the head a lot as I think about this is what one of my students at Franklin and Marshall named Don L. Bailey, who works now in New Orleans, said. Uh, he, was, he and his family survived Katrina, lived on the move for a long time, uh, was one of this big group of students that we recruited because of their talent to come to FNM when we tripled the percentage of Pell Grant pop students in the school and became a much stronger and more inclusive school in the process by every measure you could look at. And so you know, one of the best things about inclusion is that when you include, when we include, we grow, we learn, we see things in new ways. Inclusion isn't just about the dollar part of it, it's also about people being able to give their heart and soul and mind and ideas to our, our society in a big way. Donnell is gonna be the President of the United States someday. Um, but what he said one time to me, based on his studies, and maybe you all have read this somewhere else, but he, I just heard this from him, uh, this first in his family young man to go to college who I admire so much, and he said, you know, I used to think that I grew up in New Orleans in a uh, poverty-stricken community. Um, and I talked about that all the time, what it was like living in a poverty-stricken community. Then I went to FNM and started reading, um, taking economics and sociology and history, and I realized it's actually a poverty-structured community. Now, maybe somebody else has said that, but I heard it first time in my life from this 19-year-old great kid who joined uh, Franklin Marshall because of his talent and who's uh, changed the way I thought about that idea. Um, and the great thing about saying that, besides that it, it makes everybody blink, I saw the heads nodding just then. Footnote, Donnell Bailey, right? <laughs> he works at Tulane University right now, just graduated two years ago. But, the, uh, but the, the really great thing about saying something is a poverty-structured community is it reminds us, okay, well, then it can be destructured or restructured. That, you know, you, like a, a hurricane-stricken community, you can't restructure or destructure a hurricane, but you can restructure a society. It takes work, it takes trust, it takes time, it takes intensity, all that, but it's doable. And the payoff is that people grow into opportunity, they grow into full citizenship, they shape our understanding of who we are. Dr. King taught us that. Uh, but it has to be done. The work actually has to be done. It can't just be exhortation. We've got to be thinking about the things you're thinking about, which I think include how to support policies that help sustain a family uh, in terms of you know, what comes with a job, how to incent and inspire businesses to invest in their employees, invest in benefits, invest in 
continued skill building so people can grow uh, as the economy changes and as the job changes. Uh, how do we figure out how to incent employees or, or organizations to create ownership and whatever that might mean within our companies um, so more employees feel this stake that they're in it for a long term? How do we think about the legacy of racism, inequity, of uh, patriarchy, and all the thing, uh, uh, fear of the, the immigrant other? How do we think about all those things and uh, take that into account when we are developing policies and approaches to try to make inclusive growth the norm? Inclusive growth. Uh, that's the key. If it's inclusive growth, good things are going to happen. If it's growth that's exclusive, everything that is bad is going to get worse because you can't sustain exclusive growth. Inclusive growth can be sustained, but the political and social will won't be there for exclusive growth. And I, I don't know everything you're all going to talk about because some of this stuff is really quite sophisticated and advanced for a plain old English professor like me, but I do think you're on the right point in a big way. How do we build a society where more people are able to have a sense they're part of an opportunity ecosystem? It's there to invest in them, to believe in them, and provide them with a pathway into the economic, social, political mainstream and empowerment. And it does really require an economy that works for all and not for some. On that note, I'd like to learn a little bit more. So uh, thank you so much, Maureen, and your team for organizing this. Um, and let's, uh, let's roll up our sleeves and make a difference for for all people. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Good. Oops. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dan. That was terrific. And thanks so much for, again, for, for kicking us off. Um, so I'm delighted to, uh, to begin this first panel. I am joined by Aparna Mathur, a resident scholar, economic policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, next to Aparna is Paul Osterman. Um, oh, gosh, I can never say this. The Nanyang Technological University Professor of Human Resources and Management. Uh, MIT Sloan School of Management. Say it backwards. Uh, <laughs> uh, both Aparna and Paul are also um, on the Economic Opportunities Programs Advisory Council, so I'm particularly glad that uh, they're here with us today. But I am also extremely glad that Michelle de la Isla is here. Uh, Michelle is Mayor, uh, City of Topeka, Supplier Diversity Manager at Evergy. And Michelle is also a Rodell Fellow with our Rodell Program. So. Um, so uh, we make these folks do double duty all the time. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to kind of launch into this conversation. As I mentioned, this first conversation, we're really going to kind of look at some of the big picture issues of what is the state of economic opportunity, what's going on now, um, what are the problems, how do we get here, and then uh, you know, we'll start moving into sort of thinking about, well, how, how do we get to a better place, right, as Dan was talking about. So, and Aparna, let's, uh, let me just start with you, um, talking about sort of the landscape mm -hmm. of opportunity. And when we were talking, you know, when we were talking about this panel, you mentioned sort of Raj Chetty's work and um, how he's revealed sort of a declining intergenerational mobility and mm -hmm. also, in particular, sort of the uneven access to opportunity across place, right? And, and so can you just sort of comment on from the work that you've been doing and you've been doing work on sort of helping disconnected people mm -hmm. to economic opportunity for a long time. Um, can you comment on sort of what you see as some of the real challenges and what's changed and, and also just what are the real implications for individuals and families today? 
Sure. Thank, thank you, Maureen, and thank you, Dan. Uh, this is really a great opportunity to talk about economic opportunity. Um, let me begin with the story because you know this is just something that happened today morning, and when I was listening to Dan, it, it struck me. You know, this is how real people live. So today morning, I got an email from my seven-year-old's piano teacher saying, "Look, I can no longer teach your son." because I no longer have a car to be able to commute from Maryland to Virginia. And she sent this email to like seven families saying, we, you know, I no longer have a car and I'm you know, going to try to find new students in Maryland because I, I can't reach your homes. And I, you know, and I was like, okay, so you're going to give up your job essentially and you're going to try to struggle through and find some, some other families because you just don't have the means to, to be able to travel from, you know, between, between the two places. And so, you know, these are the stories that we hear all the time. And, you know, in, uh, luckily we're in a position to do something about them and I will help her. But, but this is what economic opportunity looks like for everyday people. You know, we, we tend to talk in sort of grand terms and big terms about sort of fixing economic opportunity and improving it. Uh, but a lot of it is just about the day-to-day -day struggles that people are going through around us. And so I think being cognizant of that and, and figuring out what we can do to make a change is, is the key. In terms of sort of the macro data, you know, so we do have an improved economy. And, and you know, Maureen, you and I have talked about this. We often tend to focus on aggregate indicators of economic growth. You know, we, we look at the unemployment rate because the first uh, thing we want to talk about when we talk about opportunity is do you have a job? You know, do you have the means to sustain a living? And you look at the labor market and you say, well, this is a fantastic unemployment rate. For the first time, you know, in, I don't know, 60 years, we're below 4% uh, unemployment. Uh, but then you sort of dig deeper into the data and you say, well, there's a lot of heterogeneity in who's actually getting those jobs. So you look at the African-American unemployment rate, that's still at, you know, above 5%. You look at the teenage unemployment rate, that's at 12%. You look at people with disability, you know, that's over 8%. And then, and then you hear all these stories about, you know, people who have a history of incarceration, people who have mental health issues, not finding jobs. You know, there's a, there's a real struggle. So, so there's a static sense in which we think about opportunity, which is let's look at the labor market and see who's doing and how well uh, they're doing. And then there's the broader, you know, look at sort of the life cycle aspect of economic mobility. What happens to you in your lifetime? Are you able to rise up from where you are to something even better? Are you being able to provide for your children so that there is that intergenerational aspect to mobility? And I think the findings there are a little bit disappointing. So if you look at the data from Rachetti and his colleagues, they say that for a child who was born in the 1940s, the, the probability that they would out-earn their parents was 90%. When you look at the same, uh, you know, when you look at the cohort of the 1980s, that number drops to 50%. So what's going on? Why is it that, you know, we, we view ourselves as a society that's developing and, you know, making progress and growing? And yet these statistics tend to suggest that, you know, somehow we're not doing as well as, as even people were doing, you know, several decades ago. There's, there's a race aspect to it, there's a gender aspect to it, and there's a place aspect to it. Uh, so if you look at the, you know, you compare incomes, wealth of black families with white families, you know, there's a huge disparity, there's a huge gap there. You look at the economic mobility of black families relative to, to white families, and you find that, you know, black families could be, uh, you know, doing as well, but they have a much higher probability of dropping back to the bottom quintile. So even if they are poorly mobile, even if they're in the top quintile, 
the likelihood that they would drop is a lot higher than their being able to stay there. If you look at white families, you know, the likelihood that they would stay in the top quintile is a lot higher. So there's this, you know, there's, there's disparities in what mobility looks like across race and ethnicities. Um, gender economic opportunity also varies. So one of the things I look at, and I'll talk, you know, in, in, you know later in the, in the panel, on paid family leave issues, but but I talk look at women's economic opportunity, and you see this you know trend where women in the U.S. were were really you know doing much better, participating in the labor force at really high rates, and then you see the stagnation in the 90s and the and the 2000s, and you realize that oh we don't have policies to sustain that increase in participation, and so what does that mean for mobility? And the last point is that it's also very local. You know, opportunity is a very local thing. It's about which community you grew up in, what social networks you had, where, you know, what, where do you live? Do you live in an area of concentrated poverty that restricts your ability to get a good job, to put your child in a good school? You know, where do you live? How easy is it for you to access that social network and community? And so, so it's important to remember that you know, economic mobility is not one thing. It's, it's a million different stories. And I, and I think you know, piecing together those stories over time, over place, over gender and race is critically important. Yeah, great, great. Thank you. Thank you for that sort of overview. And, and Paul, I'm going to come to you next because You've spent um, a lot of time looking at low-wage labor markets in particular, and we've been talking about sort of the problems of, of work. And you know, and the truth is, is that for most uh, U.S. households, earnings from you know wage and salary employment is, by and large, what they rely on to pay the bills every month. So, um, so as you think about this, and you also serve on MIT's Future of Work uh, Task Force. Um, you know, what's your view of the state of opportunity, particularly for low-wage workers? Um, how's that been changing? And you know, what do you see as sort of um, what explains the challenges people are meeting, sure. seeing today? Well, and, and, and thank you, Maureen. And thank you, all of you, for coming and for having us. Uh, in, in a burst of creativity, MIT doesn't have a future work task force. It has a work of the future task oh, force. Dang. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. I forgive you. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's kind of, but but <laughs> it, it's a subtle thing, actually. I mean, it sounds because it, the implication of that statement is that there will be work in the future, right? And so I'm going to come back to that in a second. But um, so I want to make I want to say three things just to kick this off. One is kind of what, what's the kind of terrible problem in, in the American labor market? Uh, by my calculation, and I could describe how I do this, but. Uh, uh, 28% of adults who are not self-employed, 28% of adults earn less than $15 an hour today. That's almost a third of the workforce is essentially a low-wage workforce. And the, and the really depressing fact about that is if you look at the year 2000, which was also a business cycle peak, it was 31% in, other, in real terms. So in other words, We've made almost no progress, which also means that, as Dan said, there's a structural problem with the labor market. It's not simply the business cycle, uh, and nor is it something that's going to fix itself. Uh, so that's the kind of first point. And we can talk more, more, more about that, but I think that's really a, a striking and discouraging fact. But I also think it's a fact that kind of tells us what our agenda is. So then I want to make two other points about the structure of the labor market, what is and what is not happening. Uh, so 
the fake news about the labor market is that uh, robots are going to kill all of our jobs and work is going to go away. And, uh, you know, we, I suppose if you're a Marxist, you, you know, I can sleep in the morning, I can drink wine in the afternoon, I can write a book and the robot will feed me. But, but, <laughs> but uh, I never thought, I mean, maybe it's a good, it's, 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 <laughs> it actually sounds, sounds good. Uh, depends if the robot can cook well. But, but, but really, the, it's not true that technology is killing jobs. It's just not true. And there's kind of two kind of simple analogies to this, to kind of two examples. Think about word processing. Word processing is a tech new, not a new, but it was a new technology. It killed the typing pool. But on the other hand, it made managers and all kinds of people, including professors, much more productive. And it created a new kind of job category, which is administrative assistance. And administrative assistance have, is a much more creative, much, you know, it does a lot more. And you can go through lots of technology. There's a classic article about ATMs. Well, you thought ATMs were going to make bank tellers go away. Well, with ATMs, running a bank branch became cheaper. So banks opened more bank branches. There are more branches out there now than there used to be. A, that increased employment. And B, the, the teller job kind of transformed into a job of trying to sell me something when I walked in, in the door. I mean, that's the story that goes time after time after time. And the data simply are not there. The technology is going to kill work and make it go away. What is true is that technology is going to um, lead to upscaling. But again, and this is something I could talk about at length, but I won't right now, not to discontinuous upskilling in which we become your brain surgeon or your hamburger flipper, but continuous and gradual upskilling. And the other thing on this point is the dem demography. So everyone my age except me is going to retire and die. And <laughs> that, that is going to create a lot of job openings, a lot of job openings. So it's kind of a classic example here. Uh, the BLS projects that there'll be 500,000 roughly fewer production worker jobs. That's a highly vulnerable occupation, right? Technology, robots, trade. But there's going to be about a million and a half openings for production workers, even though there's the net number of jobs is going to decline. Because the net will decline, but the openings are going to be there because of retirements. And so this is actually a tremendous opportunity for, for us, for all of us, all these openings. So those are some of the things that I think are, now, a couple of other comments about the structure of the labor market. With respect to skills, it's important to understand that skills are fungible. That is, to, or job descriptions are fungible. Employers have scope to adjust. Alicia Modestino, who's a colleague of, of uh, mine at, at, at Boston at Northeastern, has done very good work using burning glass data. And it shows that when the labor market is loose, employer job requirements go way up in terms of experience and education. And when the labor market is tight, employers for the same jobs, employers ask for less because they can't find people. Somehow they get the work done. And so there's choice here. There's human agency about how we define a job and who can do the job and who can get into the job. We're not becoming a labor market of Uberized people or freelance people. The number, although all of us in this room, I'm sure, Uber like crazy. In fact, less than 1% of the workforce works, gets their jobs through an app, through an online app. It's just not important out there. The number of independent contractors is not exploding. It's been relatively steady at about 10% of the workforce, and it's not exploding. We're not becoming Uberized or free agent. 
There is a change in the relationship between people and their employers, though, not necessarily for the better. Uh, employers are more willing to lay people off than they used to be, on the one hand. And there's evidence, although I have to say the evidence is not great, there's evidence that employer investment and training is declining. Uh, there's anecdotal evidence on both sides. You can read about Amazon or Amazon training, you know, providing tuition assistance or Walmart Academy. But you can also talk to a lot of job training programs at community colleges who can't get employers to answer their phone calls about training programs. And the data, to the extent that there are good data, implies some decline. And employers are outsourcing more work, contracting out work, which puts, in some cases, downward pressure. So the, the employment relationship is changing and, and needs to be thought about. Um, so those, I think, are the kind of the main headlines in terms of the structure of the labor market. Each of those headlines then raises questions about policy, about training, about how you work with firms and try and turn some of those trends around. And we'll, we'll get to the policy. Great, great, thank you. So, so I think that's a great, you know, sort of I've opened with comments from um, to economists. Um, I should admit, I like economists. I'm married to an economist. Some of my best friends are economists. So I'm very partial to economists. But, um, but it's really great, Michelle, to also have somebody who's uh, a public servant leading a city, trying to really sort of kind of solve the problems people have every day, um, to sort of have your perspective on, well, what does economic opportunity look like in my, uh, in my community? Um, who's included? Who isn't? Um, and, and you know, sort of how do you see things playing out? And, and maybe what are the things that as we think about things from the national level, what are, what are we missing and not paying enough attention to? Maybe you could comment on that. So I'll say that it was refreshing to hear everything both of you had to say because it's everything that I'm seeing and dealing with every single day in my community. Um, what, I'll, what I will add to the conversation is the fact that we keep talking about the labor market and we keep talking about the unemployment numbers, and you kind of touched upon it, but what we're not talking about is the underemployment that is massive in our communities, that is driving families to not be able to invest the way that they want in their children, that driving families not to be able to live in neighborhoods that allow them to have access to schools that are providing the education that their children want. There's in every community, the tale of two schools, right? You have the schools that are the inner, uh, inner city schools that receive an allocation of funding from the state based on the amount of money that they generate through the mill levy, right? Or whatever it is that they call it in your community. You have the suburbs that have housing that are much more higher in, in, in price. And therefore, these schools are brand new schools with all the new equipment, with all the new technology, with a smaller amount of children per classroom. And then we wonder why we have the same repetition in the workplace that we have. Like you said, the way that we say it is the system is not broken, the system is the system. And it's doing just fine until we do something about it. And in order for us to change that system, we have to change policy. And here is where it becomes complicated. Because in order for us to change policy, we have to change hearts. And we have to change minds. And those adaptive challenges are the ones that are keeping us in the situation that we're in. Um, what I see in our community is that when you look at the zip codes, everybody talks about the zip codes, um, you see minorities. 
that are living in those communities that are trying to do the best that they can. And they are struggling with the capital that they need the most. When you are a middle-income individual, the capital that you need in order for you to succeed in the labor market is the money. Because if your car breaks, you have the $400 in your bank account and you can fix it. When you are living under the median income, your capital is people to help you and sustain you. And I think that that if, if we're looking at opportunity in America, we need to figure out ways of bringing people together to support, um, to change the policies that we have in place that we know are not working, um, and also address the significant skill gap that we're having in our country, because the, the labor is changing on a constant basis, but if the individuals that need these jobs are not able to access skill training, then we're never gonna be able to move that needle in, in achievement uh, financially for families in our communities. So again, I, I, I don't wanna talk too much because I know that I'm echoing a lot of what they're saying, but all of our communities are struggling with the same thing. Um, and I love that we're here having this conversation because it gives me hope. Great, thank you so much. Just to, but before we transition to, the, to dive into the policy conversation, which I'm glad that you brought up, I'm, I'm wondering if you could each just sort of say, because I do think, you know, in sort of, and in our national work, we kind of look at statistics, right? We look at statistics a lot. And I'm just wondering if there's one that you think is a more meaningful one that we should be paying more attention to or one that we should be maybe paying less attention to. Just a, just a quick answer kind of down the line. You want to start, Paul? <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm, I guess the fat, what, how many people have a family-sustaining wage would okay, be the so number family I would sustaining look at. Wage. Yeah, so when I look at the labor market, I do look at a ton of indicators. You know, it's not the official unemployment rate, it's the underemployment rate. It's the, you know, what's happening to wage growth? How is that distributed across race and gender? I think you have to, you have to go beyond the headline number. Okay, so, you, so you're saying this, we need to do more disaggregating. Absolutely. Um, just to tackle one of the policies yeah. that we could be talking about, um, the way that we provide support for single parents trying to move up in the market, childcare is a big yeah. issue. Okay, great, great. Um, so Paul, I'm gonna like start with you in our, in our policy conversation and um, you know, and just sort of thinking about, like we've been talking about the system and whether the system is structuring poverty or, or the system is working, it's just the, how it's been working as designed. Um, you know, as you think about how policies changed over the past few decades, how would you frame sort of what the changes have done to uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis economic opportunity for low and uh, middle-income people, and are there a couple of policy sure. areas that you'd really point to in particular yeah. as problematic? So you know the joke about, you know, why am I looking for my watch, my keys under the lamppost, because that's where the light is. Yeah. You know you know that joke, yeah. right? So, so my answer will have that characteristic. So I'm going to say something about job <laughs> training, and I'm going to say something about working with firms, fully recognizing and I know this from working with a lot of, I do a lot of work with job training programs that, that you can't make those work without supports for people who lose their cars or for, for single parents and that kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not at all implying those aren't important. But in terms of job training, first job training and dealing with skills. So as I said, skills are within reach of people. The vast majority of good jobs, middle skill jobs, are jobs you can actually train people for. That, I think, is really important to accept, to understand, because sometimes the rhetoric involves you know, these extreme views. The other thing in terms of job training that I think is important to understand is that we actually know what works. 
I know that that's kind of a scandalous thing to say in a city of which many people make their living doing RCTs of, and evaluations. <laughs> and of course, they all have the self-interest of saying we need another RCT. But there are best practice models out there that you can be confident can work in terms of giving people, providing skills and making it work. And, if, and there's, those are best practice models in terms of labor market intermediaries, and that's also best practice in terms of community colleges. Uh, I think we, we know what works. What we don't have is the capacity to take that to scale. And taking that to scale is, part, is sorry to say, partly a question of resources. You can't go to scale if you don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. And it's partly a question of kind of two levels of politics. One level is kind of politics, politics, getting mayors and the governors to be willing to support the good programs and kill the bad programs. Um, and, and, and that's not easy in localities and regions that I've dealt with. And then the other kind of politics is kind of organizational politics. So you go to a community college, which is, you know, a community college is the 800-pound gorilla in terms of providing training in this country. And trying to get the community college to, to adopt best practice and to become more flexible in terms of scheduling and to admit a broader class of people and so forth and so on, it's very, very tough. Those are organizational politics. But it's important, it's important to begin with the notion that we actually know what works and then figuring out how to diffuse it. And then the other category of policy, you know, under, you know still with the philosophy of I'm under, I'm under the light post here, is how you work with firms to get them to improve their job quality. Because it's not all about fixing people, it's about fixing employers. Partly there, it's a question of, uh, of pressure. Pressure can come in a multiple set of ways. It can come through worker voice and worker organization or community groups, and that can work when it's there. It can come through jawboning, leadership or business association leadership. It can come through incentives, you know, incentives for firms to be better citizens, financial incentives of one kind or another. And in some cases, not in all cases, it can come by making the case to the employer community that there's a win-win solution around job quality, which is a topic I've done a lot of work on. And then there are settings. I did a lot of work on long-term care. I think I could make the case, which I won't do now, that in long-term care, there is a win-win solution around job quality. In other industries, not so much. And there it becomes a question of pressure. But finding ways to work effectively with employers, you can't fix this problem if you can't kind of get employers to offer better quality jobs. Um, convince them that turnover is a, is a cost, convince them that there's benefits to reducing it, and so forth and so on. So again, we could go into more detail on how you do that. But those are two, my two agendas, skills on the one hand and working on the demand side on the other hand. OK, great. Um, so, Parna, I'm going to come to you, and you know, I think that um, some of the policies Paul might be talking about are state, are federal policies. Some of them are state policies, um, and you know, I think a number of states are doing some some different things. And so, I'm just curious, as you think about sort of the challenge of opportunity, how do you think about some of these policy questions, and particularly maybe not at sort of the big federal level, but maybe at sort of the the state level. Right, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, and it's a nice segue for what Paul said. So as I said, one of the areas that I focus a lot on is women's economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what we've been seeing in the data is that women's economic opportunity, as measured by the labor force participation, has been, had been trending up for a long time. So you look, go back all the way to 1969 or 1970s, and, and you look at 
all, all the way up till the 2000s and you see you know women are actively participating in the workforce and and that includes mothers with young children you know this is not you can break down the data any way you want and you see that increase in participation and then you see in the 2000s there's a sudden stagnation and so as economists you know people got curious and said well why is it that we're seeing that labor force participation stagnate and and decline compared to other developed countries and the two big areas that they focused on were the lack of paid family leave policies in the US and of also affordable childcare. And that comes up a lot, you know, when you read sort of the, uh, you know, community-based, you talk to community workers and you talk to people on the ground and they say, well, these are really big things. You know, we, we don't think about them as sort of the policies to promote macroeconomic growth. But, but actually, for a lot of families, you know, these are big barriers to opportunity. So as part of the AEI Brookings Working Group on Paid Leave, we sort of started looking at that and said, well, why is it that we don't have a policy on this at the federal level? And why is it that a lot of states are actually moving forward um, you know, with putting forward their own paid leave programs? Um, so, so we actually you know, sort of initiated that work, and now we have a recommendation for a paid leave policy at the federal level, and we are seeing some bipartisan support coming forward. But I think you know, sort of looking at inside families and recognizing that there are changes happening within families. We're no longer looking at family structures where there's one parent out in the workforce and one parent doing all the caregiving at home. There are, you know, in 80% of homes now where with children, both parents are in the workforce and both parents are providing caregiving. And so the fact that we don't have policies that have kept up with that change in demographics within the family, I think is a big barrier to opportunity. You know, how, how do you make these choices all the time? How do you decide who's going to stay home, who's going to give up their job, who's going to, you know, take that time off unpaid? Uh, because clearly you're not going, you know, you can't afford to ignore what's happening within the family. And, and, um, but also at the same time, realize that a lot of your economic security and freedom comes from having that job. So I think, you know, reacting to that and sort of figuring out what can we be doing better? In terms of um, um, sort of childcare policies, I think we see the same situation. So when I started looking at the data, the one striking statistic when you compare the US to, to other OECD countries is that we tend to rely heavily on informal sources of childcare in the US. About, you know, you look at the average hours spent in informal childcare in the OECD and it's a minimal few hours. And you look at that in the US and you realize, oh my God, it's like 10 times more. And a big reason for that is the cost, mm -hmm. because a lot of families can't afford to put their kids in you know, good quality, but formal daycare centers, uh, because the costs are so high. And you, know, you, you want to work, but you don't have the money to, to put your kids there. And then again, you, you find families making choices between, well, should I work or should I just stay home and provide that caregiving at home? Or do I have a relative come in and do that? So I think addressing those two policies is you know, pretty key to sort of figuring out the challenges that families are going through. It's also interesting, you know, I was reading through some of the experiments and like the moving to opportunity stuff that Rachetti talks about. And he says that, uh, you know, when we talk about families moving from low opportunity areas to high opportunity, a lot of times at the back of our mind, we think, well, people don't want to do that because somehow they have ties to that, to that place. You know, they have family or they have other ties and they don't want to move. And the reality is that a, that a lot of times people are not moving is because they don't have support to do that. You know, it, it's not just finance. It's not just money. It's being able to go and talk to that landlord and say, okay, can you rent me, uh, you know, an affordable house in this area? 
can somebody help me figure out childcare in, the, in that place where I'm moving to? And there are so many other struggles that families are going through. So I think, you know, as you said, it's, it's not even at a state level. I think it's really at a community level, just sort of figuring out, well, what is it that we can do to, to bring about the change that we all recognize? You know, they're sensible. We say, well, why are people living in areas where there are no jobs? You know, there, there are these states and cities where unemployment is really low, and then you find a cluster of people living in places where unemployment is really high and there's no movement. And we, and we, you know, people just don't seem to be moving as much as before. And then it turns out, well, there's a lot more that you need to do. Uh, you know, it could be hand-holding. It could be providing advice. It could be providing emotional support. But there's a lot that we can do at the state, city, local level that, that would enhance opportunity. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. Thank you. Um, Michelle, I see you nodding your head over there a lot on some of these. So, you know, we're... to become a bobblehead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so, no, it's, it's great. I mean, I think, you know, um, but also when we talked, you had a lot of interesting things to say about what you were doing in Topeka uh, to try to address some of yeah. these like very kind of on the ground challenges that people are facing. And, and also just in particular, also thinking about like, like, how do we spend economic development dollars and things like that? So maybe you could talk to us about sort of what are some of the things that you've been doing and working on to really grapple with these issues. So first, I'll say that a lot of credit goes to the team that I get to work with every day. Um, one of the biggest problems with policies is that typically policies are created very deaf to the people that actually are going to benefit or suffer from them, right? Um, but we have a, a great group of people in Topeka who have all had their own life stories and are willing to be very creative in doing policy work. So we have completely radicalized what our term economic development is. Um, and it has not been easy, but uh, the, the current trend is economic development happens when you have a great place so that businesses come. We are not talking as much in the economic development world about the big incentives. <gasps> Um, that you're going to give a community. We're going to really talk about what are you also bringing. Um, so as part of our economic development initiatives, we have started having conversations about who are we going to give any incentive to if we're going to give incentives to. And we're going to start looking at how much are you paying people. And if the wages are not, thank you for that. <laughs> there was some clapping in the back. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> But if, if you're not going to pay something livable, then we may not want to have you in our community because we want to ensure that every single individual in our community is able to make a living wage and have some sort of benefits. Because after credit card use, one of the biggest causes of bankruptcy is medical bills, right? Um, the other thing that we've been doing is changing. We've, we've created pillars of what economic development means to us. And believe it or not, diversity is one of them. Um, we are looking at our community boards. We're trying to make sure that the voices in our boards are diverse so that when we're talking about issues in our communities, we're starting to listen to everybody in our community, not just the same, the STP, the same 20 people that are in every board. Um, we're also talking about transportation. Um, we put economic development dollars into, again, Highcrest, which is one of our most impoverished neighborhoods. You talk about one of their challenges on how to get a better paying job. They could not get to work in our bus system because we're only 127,000 people. If you're a mayor in the Midwest, you are not having the same issues that DC and California are having because you have mass populace and you have money that you can make programs with. We don't. We have to figure out what to do with those dollars, right, and be very judicious with it. 
we decided that we were gonna put money so that we could have a program that for $5, you could get to work. And you just call and say, hey, I'm gonna work in Frito-Lay or in Mars, which is one of our big corporations, or in Home Depot Distribution Center. All of these jobs pay like $18 an hour. And for $5, you could get there. And that has changed lives already. Um, the other thing that we've done for economic development is that we put over $4 million into putting a tech school right in the middle of one of our most impoverished neighborhoods. Um, and we're talking about economic prosperity, uh, inclusive prosperity is what we're calling our economic development strategies. So we're being pretty bold um, and having some really tough conversations has been really interesting as mayor, um, developing relations so that we can start changing the rhetoric about what poverty is. Um, because I think that there is a big misconception if you've never been poor, um, I, I could speak about this because I've been homeless. Um, a lot of people think that you become homeless and you're poor because this is the way that you want to live. And the reality is that most of the individuals that are facing poverty or that are homeless at one point in time in their life are in that situation because something tragic and traumatic occurred, whether it be a loss of income that was immediate, whether it be some sort of trauma that occurred by domestic violence. Some, any, there's, there's so many things that are occurring. So, and then once you get into the system of being poor, it becomes extremely expensive to be poor. And it is extremely challenging to get out of it. So having those conversations, having some courageous conversations about race, which has always been fun, but I love to push that button, <laughs> um, with individuals to say, well, you know, let's take a look at why, if, if I were to bring you this resume and the name is a name that maybe you don't know how to spell or say, like mine, would you be as inclined to hire? But, but you have to have those conversations. And in and, and, and Topeka, we are having a lot of fun with reinventing um, economic development and, and talking about things that are challenging in our community um, so that we could just change that needle. Yeah, great. Thank you. I want to, I want to, because at various points you've all sort of mentioned skills. And so I want to come back to the, the skills mainly also because, like, I have spent, you know, um, a couple of decades like working on these issues of skills and helping people connect to jobs um, and you know but honestly like I, I think about this so you know from a nation at risk and you know in the Reagan administration I think it was to Bill Clinton's bridge to the 21st century to you know now all this conversation on future work and lifelong learning. like we've been talking about lifelong learning and skills for a really long time and so I guess my question is is like so, so since people have been focusing on this, is skills really the answer, yes or no? And if it is, why, why do we keep getting it wrong, apparently, and what do we do? Um, or is there another piece that we're missing that we keep focusing on skills, but we're missing something else that should be going alongside it? So just, uh, Michelle, you're smiling at me, so go ahead. So. Uh, oh, no, I'm starting with Michelle. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead, Michelle. How can you provide skills to somebody that is surviving? Who's mm -hmm. what? That is surviving. It's just barely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that when we talk about skills, we have to address the, the barriers to equity, mm -hmm. okay? And then we can start talking about skills. So absolutely, if my job, let's say that I work in a factory, decides that they are going to give me a scholarship so that I could go to a tech school half the time, but then I have to figure out how to provide childcare for my child, or I have to figure out as well how to get to that school on a regular basis. 
is it really helping me? Mm -hmm. So I think that skills is significant. Yes, we need to start focusing on skills, but we also need to start figuring out what the needs are of the individuals that are going to be receiving those skills and treating people as humans. They are a holistic creature. It's not just about the job. And when we start addressing individuals as people and not just as a person that comes to learn and that is going to produce an economic benefit, we start seeing more opportunity arise. Great, thank you. So, and I completely agree with that. Uh, job training programs that I've seen that have been very successful work hard to offer a set of support services around the job training. So to help the woman you know, deal with her car issue or the set of things that you've talked about. So I think that's absolutely right. But let, me, let, me, let me look at your question from a different angle. I mean, one, one, it, job training has historically been a, a, a popular solution to everything, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, because it has the kind of quality of kind of being politically neutral and uh, not addressing structural issues in the economy. And so, it, you know, from the left, the critique is, well, it's just you're just blaming the victim and kind of dismissing skills and training. I, I disagree with that perspective because, in fact, when you talk to job training programs, as, as I and as everyone in this panel does, uh, and you say, well, what, tell me, you know, people come in the door with fifth, sixth grade reading, and you're just not going to get a good job if you, don't have, if you only have fifth or sixth grade reading. So, it, it, I, I think it would be naive, politically correct perhaps, but naive not to think that skills are an issue. Uh, they absolutely are an issue, but they're not the only issue. They're not the answer, right? So the other piece of the answer is thinking about structure, right? Thinking about the quality of jobs and what, what, what's being provided and, and those kinds of questions, which does get you, as I said earlier, into the demand side of the labor market. One, one last comment in terms of you know, your kind of history. You know, we've gone in this country, I think, through, we've always talked about job training as a solution to everything for the reasons I just said. But we've actually gone through two periods in which skills and training and education have really been part of the national political debate, central, okay? One was the war on poverty, which I'm probably the only person old enough in this room to remember the war on poverty. But the war on poverty fundamentally had job training at the core of it. And then the other was the kind of the Clinton era, which was partly America at risk, but partly this kind of fear that we were losing out to Germany and Japan competitively, and that the solution was high skills. And in both of those eras, uh, there really was a national effort to kind of move the needle forward in terms of investment in skill training and so forth. Sometimes done well, sometimes done badly. Although I, although I just kind of minimized you know, our fear about robots and technology, and the fact is that we are now in a period in which there is a lot of public anxiety around the labor market and around technology and around the future and about all that. And I think this is a period in which you know, we could have another national commitment around skills and training. The politics of it, I think, are there. My, my political prognostical skills are basically negative uh, <laughs> uh, and I, for reasons which I think I bet you all yours are too. Uh, uh, but, but nonetheless, I think, I think that 
you know, we may be in a time in which, you know, we could take advantage of this anxiety and have, you know, another national push around these issues. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that there is a skills issue, you know, we, so, so I know there's this hesitancy, well, what does that skill mean? You know, and as Paul said, a lot of times it's basic reading and basic knowledge of math and, yeah, you know, you talk to employers and we tend to think, oh, it's the high tech kind of skills that people don't have. And I think a lot of times it's just very basic skills that people don't have. So, so I do sympathize with that. I, my, I think the only different point I would make is that, you know, we, we have to think about, well, where did that problem start? You know, why are you stuck with just a fifth or sixth grade level of education or, or knowledge of math or knowledge of reading? You know, and so you have to go back all the way to, you know, where are these gaps in skills, knowledge and education coming from? And what can you do at, at a much earlier age in life? to figure out, well, you know, why aren't you getting the good schools and why aren't you being able to, you know, get the good, get the good teachers and, and be able to get those, uh, you know, get that training early in life. So, so I think you have to go back a little bit further. You know, the, the skills issue is sort of a symptom of, a, I think, a, a, a larger problem because when you talk to employers, you know, it's not really the fact that if we went to a job that they would say, well, you don't have the skills training because your school didn't teach you, you know, it's, it's a question of can we adapt to what, what they're doing? And yes, absolutely you can, but for a lot of people who come from different backgrounds, they can't. Uh, so, so that's one thing. Uh, I also agree that, you know, there, this is a time when we're seeing a renewed push for, uh, for skills training, which can actually be great for the, for the country. So, um, you know, I talked about the teenage unemployment rate of being over 12%. Uh, what we're seeing with the new types of training programs uh, is that this is more employer-driven, and, and this does require sort of tying together community colleges and you know state and local governments, and and ensuring. Uh, so, so the example that comes to mind is South Carolina, where they have the Carolina Apprenticeship Program, where they actually tell kids, well, you know, you're in high school or community college, and you can come and train with us on the job, and you also get your degree, and you're still learning. Uh, but then after that, you, you, you're actually being paid and you don't graduate with student debt and you can continue to work with us. So I think investing in those kinds of, uh, you know, on-the-job training programs, I think, is, is going to be far more fruitful than sort of the, you know, the federal government saying, okay, we have yet another job training program that's, um, that's sort of delinked from what the private sector is trying to do. So I think we need to change our focus of how we think about training and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Great. So, Michelle, I'm going to come back to you, and I, I think there's a couple of things. So, one is that you, um, I think, really helpfully brought in in this skills conversation that people are whole people, right? And so, I think, you know, and also this idea that, like, who, so who really can, if we invest in systems that provide an opportunity for somebody to gain skills, who's really positioned to take advantage of that opportunity, right? If you don't have the transportation, if you don't have the childcare, if you don't have a stable place to live, if you don't have those things in your life, you, you, you may, you know, it may be easier from a policymaker's standpoint to say, oh, everybody's free to participate. But in fact, many people are not free to participate for a variety of these, these kinds of things. And so as I think about how to build inclusion, it seems like you're really focusing on, on some of those, addressing some of those hidden challenges, they're in plain sight, un, but unattended to challenges um, that people have and that limit their freedom to participate in these kinds of things. And I'm curious, as you, you've talked some about what you're doing, and I'm curious also if you, you must talk to many other mayors and things like that, I'm curious sort of, you know, 
how many of your peers are sort of seeing similar challenges and you know, are they doing similar things or, or what have you learned from maybe them that, uh, that you're sort of building into what you're trying to lead forward in Topeka? So I think that all of us in our communities are seeing the same issues. Like I said, the zip code issue is, is ubiquitous. The, 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 the issues with transportation are another big issue. And, and we're all trying to figure out ways that we're going to tackle it. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, a very dynamic cohort of mayors in the nation right now. I mean, it is just superb to sit down with them and talk with them about their ideas and things that they're doing. And a lot of it has, has focused on eliminating those barriers to transportation, eliminating those, but talking about, so I'll give you a great example, Nan Whaley, Dayton, Ohio, mm -hmm. universal pre-K at the city level, you know, figure it out a way of passing a tax that will now allow for everybody to have pre-K. Um, so there's mayors all over the nation that are trying to figure out ways to, to eliminate barriers and to ensure that everybody has opportunity. Yeah, yeah great. Um, Aparna, I'm gonna come to you next, and I'm, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm gonna push you a little here, right? Because, um, because you keep talking about, you know, maybe federal shouldn't do this or federal shouldn't do that, right? But I'm gonna ask you what federal should do. And also in particular, I'm gonna bring up one of these, I think, very thorny issues that we see a lot of times. So, so you bring up sort of the tax to fund pre-K, right? And this can be a very challenging thing at local levels, right? Because they say, well, we're gonna raise a tax, but then like, people are gonna to start to say, well, I don't wanna pay taxes, right? So maybe, you know, especially companies, right? So maybe I'm gonna go over here, right? And so it ends up in this, we end up in these sort of challenging, you know, sort of competition by across places to sort of not have taxes, but then you can't deal with these services. So you get in these very stuck, stuck places. And we also know that some parts of the country are just, you know, have more resources than other parts of the country, and we're one country, and, mm -hmm. you know, so you can't expect sort of the poorest place to somehow do it all on their own. So, right. so what do you think is the federal policy role here, and, and what would you sort of want to see in terms of a federal policy that really helps expand access to economic opportunity? So I, I'll talk about three. Uh, you know, one is the paid leave issue. I mm -hmm. do think that that should be a federal policy because it's great to have state states experimenting with different programs, but I think at the end of the day, that means that we have, you know, 20, 25, uh, 50 different policies, uh, and, and so much about access depends upon which state you happen to be in, and oh, do I get job protection or not? I mean, we see that with California was the first state to, to do paid leave, and, uh, you know, now we're realizing that oh, you know, they didn't have job protection as part of their paid leave plan. And so a lot of low-income families said, well, we can't really afford to take time off from work, even if we're getting paid because we don't have, you know, job protection. So will I have a job to go back to? Um, so, so I think, you know, the, it, it's good to have state experimentation. I think it, it, you know, it does it faster than if you're not seeing momentum at the federal level. But I would absolutely say you need a federal policy that's uniform across every state and, and that guarantees a minimum floor of access to paid leave for every worker across the country. So I absolutely agree with that. Uh, on the on the child care piece, you know, we do as a country try to support families with children. So I'm going to talk about the tax credits that we currently have. We have the child tax credit that you know transfers cash or tax savings to families when they have children. Uh, we have the child independent care credit. We have you know grants at the at the state level that that try to do that. 
But again, when you look at the child care, you know, these tax credit systems, a lot of it is geared towards helping relatively better off families. And the way that that's working out is that a lot of these credits are non-refundable, which means that if you don't owe taxes, you don't really get a benefit from these programs. And so I've always said, well, you know, if the one thing we're trying to do is help low-income families, and, and that's the, you know, I see the proper role of the federal government as that, that, you know, the most vulnerable absolutely need to get the help, then these programs are not targeted at all towards those families. So we, so that's something that, you know, people talk about, people recognize, and yet we're not seeing that getting fixed at, at, at the center. And we, we keep expanding the child tax credit, but it does nothing more to, you know, do, do more, do more for, for the poorest. And the third program is the federal earn income tax credit program, which I think is actually working and, and is a good you know, means to supplement um, incomes for low income families. So, so again, uh, I think what's missing there is that in the recent tax reform bill, you know, all of us imagine that expanding the EITC would be sort of top of the um, list in terms of policies to help lower income households, and it wasn't. And so I do think that you could be doing a lot more at the federal level. I absolutely agree with you, whether it's raising minimal new taxes to, to fund these programs, uh, just making sure that it's, you know, the, the most vulnerable get access to the programs uh, is key. Uh, so, so I think there's a lot we could do at the federal level to reform the current system. Great. And before I go to you, Paul, I just I want to mention we're going to be coming to all of you for questions very soon. So uh, think about them. Um, if you're watching online, our hashtag is uh, talk opportunity. So uh, tweet a question at us. Um, that would be great. Um, and Paul, I'm wondering if you have sort of thoughts also on policy on what kinds of policies at the federal level, but also at states, you know, what are the things that states should be be thinking yeah. about in terms of these questions? Yeah. So just, just as a kind of a footnote on, on what Aparna just said, um, there, there is a tension here, and it's, it's, this isn't something I've discovered, between kind of narrowly targeted versus universal policies, right? Because the politics of it are that Medicare is not being cut and Medicaid is being cut, right? And, and so, you know, on the other hand, if I had a dollar, I'd rather it go to someone who needs it than, than to Bill Gates. And so um, it's a complicated question that needs to be kind of thought through, I think, targeting versus universal, universal policies. Having said that, you know, if you just kind of go back to this kind of framework that I talked about before, in terms of, in terms of skills and training programs, I think we do know what works. And so the question is using federal resources and federal influence and federal incentives to spread best practice and to uh, weed out bad practice. And that's true. And that's, that's not going to come entirely from the Fed saying do this, because most of, this op most of the action is at the state level. And some of the action is at the, at the local level. The governors play a big role. But the feds have lev levers, financial levers, to affect the behavior of governors and to affect the behavior of mayors. And we can't reach scale without resources. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it seems like a knee-jerk thing to say, but you can't do it without resources. And so, you know, that's kind of one piece of it. What, what's much harder, I think, is to think about how you um, move the needle with respect to job quality and kind of the demand side and, and, and firm behavior. Uh, one thing that we do know that works in terms of uh, job quality is if workers are unionized. Uh, and, and, you know, in the last 30 years have seen 
you know, unions have declined for a variety of reasons, some of which are their own fault, some of which are due to the changes in the structure of the economy, but some of which is due to federal policy, to be frank, and to, and to, and to the courts, and to, the, and to Congress, and to the president. And, and, and that's reversible, and that would make a difference in terms of job quality. Uh, federal federal job boning, uh, the Obama administration engaged in job boning around job quality and was fairly fairly aggressive about it and was fairly aggressive about federal contracting around job quality. We've seen um, in the last year, actually the last six months, several influential business people and business groups have started talking about stakeholder capitalism, which involves job quality, and kind of underwriting that and supporting that and giving that a lot of Megaphone, I think, is, is important too. So, I think there are a variety of kind of tools. Um, but you know, the governors. I'm working in a state now that has an extremely dysfunctional skills training infrastructure, and and it's really the governor who's going to fix it if the if if it's going to be fixed with federal resources. So, mm -hmm. great. Great. Well, thank you. I want to, um, we do have a couple of people with microphones, and I want to take a, a couple of questions. So, um, the gentleman in, okay. I just want, I was asking whether or not, does job training create skilled jobs, or just create competition for those skilled jobs? And second of all, you said 28% of people make less than $15 an hour. So does job training somehow alter that ratio? So that's, those, that's a, a very good and very, very tough question. So you're essentially asking, is job training about musical chairs? Uh, and you know, the, I think there are a couple of answers to that question. It's a, it, first off, there's been very little research to, to answer that question. Because to really answer that question in a rigorous way, you would need uh, to randomly assign this city gets a lot of job training and this doesn't, and how does the labor market structure change? And, and you can't do that. You can't do that experiment. Um, there is reason to believe that firms, employer decisions about how to design jobs and how to adopt technology depends on the skill and education level of the potential workforce. So if there's a lot of people in the community with high skills, the firms will go in one direction with respect to job design and technology adoption. And if there's a lot of people in the workforce without high skills, they go in another direction. So that's kind of, and, and there is pretty good research on that. And so that's indirect art evidence around this kind of general equilibrium question, which is essentially the jargon for the question you're, you're asking around that. There's a, there's a flavor of job training, which is to create job ladders within organizations. So the classic example is you're in a big hospital and you're working as a dietitian, and you can get job training to move up into some uh, healthcare technician job, a much better job. That is, uh, it, it, over time, the hospital's human resource strategy would change about who it's hiring and what kinds of opportunities it offers to people. And so that's more of a structural change facilitated by job training. And then the final kind of answer I would give you to that question is, um, is uh, well, in a tight labor market in which there's people, uh, returning citizens, formerly incarcerated people who would otherwise just, or, or people have been out of the workforce for a long time and firms are having vacancies, because there are vacancies in some local labor markets now, unfilled vacancies, job training can help fill those vacancies without the musical chairs phenomenon. 
And then the final piece of my answer is distributional. I mean, this is going to sound, you know, I'm, I'm going to be shot for this. But, but um, um, I, could, you sh I could shoot you on Fifth Avenue, and no one would arrest me. Hey. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait. You could shoot me on Fifth Avenue, and no Stop. one would arrest me. Um, I, you know, there's a, as we've heard, the distribution of economic opportunity is skewed, unfortunately, in this country by race and ethnicity. And so I'd like to change that distribution. And minimally, job training programs can change that distribution, even if you don't think they have a distributional impact. So those are my answers to what I think is a very serious, very difficult, mm -hmm. tough question. Hi, I wanted to ask you about the increasing uh, vulnerability of the workforce, that with so much of the risk being shifted onto the worker themselves, workers working hourly wages, reduced benefits, um, more than half the workforce now is, is hourly paid. So while people are talking about Uber and Lyft, you know, all the folks in retail are hourly paid and have vulnerable uh, shifting schedules. Um, so that's a different kind of issue than job training, and I would really be interested in your thoughts on that, and especially um, there's often an effort towards pushing uh, people out of work or low-wage workers into uh, small business and entrepreneurship, and yet if you have little or no savings, that seems an unrealistic strategy. Okay, and maybe I think uh, next to you, there's also a question, why don't we take those both at the same time? And yeah. then we're my question will be along the same lines too, Mike Bartlett, National Governors Association. Um, we've seen kind of this evolution of not just thinking about employer engagement, but employer partnership, and even into this realm of kind of employer co-investment. Kind of building on this question as we're seeing kind of the fissuring of work and domestic outsourcing and these kind of changes in employment structures with employers, what are some of the levers that governors and states have to kind of put their thumb on the, the trend line there and get to a more equitable uh, world of work, essentially. And don't say the bully pulpit. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> so great. I mean, I think we have sort of two questions about risk and instability of, of work, and also is it bleeding into entrepreneurship, but then a specific thing on sort of what can governors actually actually do about this. And um, so I don't know who wants to weigh in first. You yeah, I mean, I, I think, so this is the question that came up as part of our paid leave work too, because we said, look, there are, we keep talking about paid leave and traditionally, you know, it's been sort of employer provided and what happens when these structures change, which is clearly happening. We may not understand the extent of it, but, you know, there is a, there is a, a change in the labor market where even, even from the employee perspective, you hear, well, we want more flexibility, so we're going to, you know, change. We don't have those old contractual relationships. And the solution, you know, to our mind is to basically sort of rethink how we do social insurance as well. So currently, you know, a lot of the benefits are coming through the employer. And if we can sort of make the worker independent to some extent by, by saying, okay, this is sort of your social insurance pool of benefits that travels with you, whether you're in a part-time job, a contractual you know, relationship where the employer is not providing that, you know, the retirement benefits or social not sort of pooling in for your health insurance and so on. So one idea that came out of our, our group and, and two people within our group, frankly, was to, to sort of imagine these um, sort of accounts that travel with you where you are, you are paying into the account, so you have your own savings, but then the employer that you're working for is also sort of, you know, gets incentives to, to 
contribute into that account. So it's like a, it's a social insur insurance pool, it's a social insurance account, but it's, you know, it's not tied to the employer as much. And I think we need to sort of figure out other better ways to do that because the economy is changing, you know, it, it is turning to a situation where people might be working for multiple employers, whether they're in part-time jobs, they actually, you know, might be making ends meet by doing three part-time jobs or two part-time jobs. And so I think thinking about, well, how do we make sure they have health insurance, retirement security, um, you know, all the paid leave benefits, you know, maybe something to offset the cost of childcare, but all of that coming to them rather than being dependent on that relationship, I think is key. So, yeah, I, I guess I would distinguish a couple of different things. When I looked at these, the kind of structural changes you both are talking about, some of them are happening for good reasons. It, it may be more efficient, for example, for a company to outsource some kinds of work than to do it in-house. Some of it's happening for less than admirable reasons, namely, you know, it's a way of driving down compensation and getting certain jobs out of the company's internal labor market into some, some other firm and then force those, those category of firms to bid against each other, driving wages down. And some of it's being done for reasons of not thinking clearly. So, and, and I, as you think about policy, I think you want to distinguish, between, distinguish what's going on. So not thinking clearly. I, I, other people, I haven't worked on this, but I've heard a lot of talks on this topic. Scheduling can be radically improved. That scheduling practices in retail could be improved in a way that makes both the employer and the workers better off. It's a certain amount of ignorance and laziness on the part of management to not tell you until two days later that you're not working that Friday afternoon. Uh, and, and that can be fixed. And it's a win-win fix. So certain kind of, and, and some states have legislatively enacted that win-win fix with no negative consequences. Um, when, when outsourcing or, or fishering occurs for good reasons, there are efficiency reasons from the point of view of the firm, uh, you, you, you do still run into questions about co-employment. So, so who's, who's responsible? And did, would the mother, quote, mother firm bear some degree of responsibility for employment standards in the, in the outsource firm? And you certainly run into that when it's being done for, for negative reasons. That's, that is, there's, you know, that's a policy choice. That, it's not written on some tablet about what the rules and the laws are around co-employment. And actually, it depends, the National Labor Relations Board changes those rules pretty regularly, depending on who's president of the United States. And so, <laughs> so you know, that's a policy decision around that. When, when outsourcing and fishering is occurring for really unfortunate reasons, there's misclassification. And that's a labor law enforcement question. And, and you know, there's in certain industries, I, I've looked at residential construction, there's a massive amount of misclassification in certain low-wage industries. I think there's less misclassification in other industries, even if they're a low-wage industry. So that's, that's the labor market enforcement question. And then certain kinds of policies, certain kinds of benefits probably should be portable mm -hmm. uh, so to protect people. So I think that's kind of a menu of, of ways to think about it. Great. Uh, let's see. Oh, I see a question over in the... Hi, resident millennial in the room. <laughs> and I have a question for you concerning... I hate millennials. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> tough crowd, tough panel. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's okay. Wow. I feel so attacked right now. Oh <laughs> um, no, seriously. So my my question for you is this. So I'm pretty fresh out of college, and my question concerns the issue of internships, specifically unpaid internships, and trying to find your first job out of college. A lot of employers are looking for prior experience. Now keep in mind, this is your first entry-level job. How, especially if you're more of a low-income student, how are you going to get that prior experience if you couldn't afford to do an unpaid internship and you have to work in retail, work at a restaurant, seek some other avenue to get income? And how how can we make this a better workforce for you know the future of our employment? I mean, I think that's a great question, actually, and, and it, it's a question I'm going to punt on in the sense that I know I know that there's been a lot of recent work and thinking done about how to how to deal with internships and prevent it from being a source of exploitation. Uh, Russell Sage Foundation has recently given a grant to to and you know if you sent me an email, I could send you the the link to a woman who's doing, a, 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 I think, what will be quite an interesting book on um, internships. I, I believe that in a few settings or states, there's now been legislation to prevent internships from being classified as non-employment situations. Um, but it's not something that I'm comfortable bloviating about at any, any length. I think, it's, it's, I think it really is an important question for millennials, and I love millennials. <laughs> that changed. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, so okay, I'll, I'll do three. One, the one, two, three, and um, four, Thank and then we'll go for a lightning round. How about that? Okay. So Thanks. we'll do four questions. Okay. Um, because it's a panel of two economists and a practicing mayor, and because you got a living example in Stockton, California, of a mayor advocating and pursuing a plan of basic, of universal basic income for its poorest residents. I'm wondering what the views of the panel are on that question. All Too right. radical? The UBI question. Uh -huh. uh, hi. Uh, we're currently in a really good economic situation, right? But like, just like winter, recession is coming, right? <laughs> so like, what happens when the labor market loosens uh, the economy collapses again, and all these job training programs, things that we're talking about now, becomes less palpable to our shareholder class. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, great. Are we prepped for recession? Yeah. I, I guess I wanted to go to the most fundamental question, which when you, when you talk about policy and obviously the, the intersection federal, state, and, and city, um, the question is really in terms of uh, who has the responsibility? And the, I answer my own question. It's a shared responsibility between business and government in terms of how you solve these intractable problems, which have only gotten worse. Uh, really, the social determinants of health, lack of housing, lack of affordable health care, uh, the discrepancy in wages from uh, the, the C-suite to the average worker is um, child care, uh, student debt reduction. You can go on and on with the list is where, where is the balance of obligation? Uh, policy is about mandates or providing, as one of the speakers said, a different set of incentives. Uh, incentives usually re relate to the tax code 
and reduced obligations by corporate America. Where do you go after the giveaway two years ago of the largest multi-billion dollar giveaway ever that could have been a, a obviously, the, the what ifs, could have been traded for a new list of policy obligations on the business side, but we're not. So where do you go today when you think about, yes, all these policies are wonderful on the Democratic side. They, they've got great ideas at tremendous cost. No one knows how you're going to cover them. To where does business really stand? And I, uh, just shortly, I mean, some of the companies who sponsored this very conference um, have done everything they can to make sure that their workers are not employees, but that their workers are part-time workers, don't get health care, have lower right. wages and other things. But I'll stop there. That's not okay. true, but, um, uh, but I do think it's a good question about what is the balance of obligation across government and business as we think about how do we address these challenges. And you had a question. Yes, uh, and that will be our last. Yeah, Marcus Courtney, and I serve on the Washington State Future Work Task Force, and uh, it's very engaging discussion. I think uh, Michelle, um, the mayor, brought up the whole question around equity of opportunity of somebody that has a different name doesn't get hired. And from my experiences, I think it's not the idea that a robot is going to take your job, but software is going to be increasingly influence how people get work and get jobs, and there's a deployment of AI, um, and that oftentimes that AI doesn't take into question and consideration the equity and uh, how it's designed. But you know, in the future, it's very possible, and we see this already, that the software is going to be determining who gets hired, yep. who gets fired, and how they get yep. reviewed. So I'm just curious of what the panel thinks about this deployment of software increasingly in the workplace that is influencing these decisions, and if you have any recommendations for policymakers. OK, so we have how software and AI is influencing hiring and employment decisions. We have um, the balance of business and government uh, obligations. We have preparing for this session and UBI. And I'm just going to start with you, Michelle, and you can sort of pick which one of those you want to respond to since the UBI one was the first one and it was framed in the context of a mayor. And we'll just kind of um, go down the line and that will, then that will close this out. So, so Tubbs is a great friend. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how his experiment works. Um, it wouldn't fly in my community. So that's, that's going to be my answer for that one. Um, for yours, absolutely. I was just in Harvard last month, and we were doing talking about DNI. And one of the things that we delved into was the fact that AI has significant biases, because if you look at most programmers, they're Caucasian. Um, so it's been shown over and over again that when you have AI doing interviews, there is a disparate amount of minorities and women who are not even being considered. So there should be some sort of, I don't know, they, they, I, I don't want to say policy, but I think that there has to be some sort of pressure from people starting to speak up about these issues so that corporations are not using the software because it's just not inclusive. Uh, well, all those questions, but the possible one about what's happening with the recession are a little bit outside my comfort zone. On, on, on the hiring thing, I think the evidence does support that this is a big problem. But you know, the, the solution to that is a partly um, equal employment opportunity legislation. I mean, if, if people are hiring and, and women or minorities are not being hired in proportion to their relationship to the relevant labor pool, there's, there is a legal solution to that. But, but Beyond that, 
I, I, I wish I knew, had more intelligent things to say about it. Balance responsibility is something I've thought a lot about with respect to job training and skills training. You know, we, historically in the U.S., the, the system was firms did what's called general training. I mean, school systems did general training, and firms provide job-specific training. And I think the employer community has pushed more of the training responsibility onto the public sector. You could say that that's because skills are becoming more general with computer skills. That would be kind of a piece of an answer. But I think there's also kind of a, just a cost shifting. And I think the costs do need to shift back. But... Um, uh, and that's part of this general question about how you work with the employer community to have them step up a little more with respect to responsibilities. When, when recessions hit, and I can't, you know, your question was really posed in terms of the politics around recessions, and will there continue to be political support for job training when there's a recession? But in terms of the effectiveness of job training when there's a recession, you know, school enrollments go up when times are bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, job training programs are... That's an opportunity to give people skills, uh, give people an opportunity, because it'll turn around again and times will get, get good again. The politics of it's a different question, and, and I, I'm, I just don't want to be a political prognosticator. I wish I had something smart to say about UBI, but I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, okay. so just on the UBI question, I think, you know, I, I was talking to um, some people who are actually running a UBI and, and it's obviously great to have more cash being given to low-income families. You know, my, my question is always, well, why universal? You know, you have a limited amount of funds to spend. Again, why not just target it to the people who need it the most? And, and I think one tricky thing with UBI that a lot of these experiments are discovering is that, you know, when you give people cash, it also uh, affects their ability to receive other benefits. So, you know, do you qualify for food stamps? You know, what does that do to TANF receipt and so on? So I think those are good questions in the design of a UBI program that need to be considered on the job training and recessions. I think the more you institutionalize these, so, so what, what I liked about the Carolina apprenticeship model is that it, it already has a community of, you know, the colleges, the state government, employer tax credits. It's all institutionalized. That's not going to go away in a recession or... Um, you know, in a boom. And so the more we can do this as uh, sort of, you know, structures that come up organically and within communities, I think the, the less likely that they will disappear when economic